Greetings in Jesus' worthy name. The one who is our perfect example we heard this morning. The one that we say we would honor if he would come to our house. I thought of it just to broaden the thought a little bit. How would I treat the president if he would come to my house? He's sort of a a status by himself. Would I treat him differently? Should I treat him differently than my neighbor? And the Lord Jesus. But the Lord in the scripture puts it together. Said, uh, we are all made in the image of God. Everyone deserves respect. Everyone deserves love. No, don't deserve it. But because of, because of very virtue of us being created in the image of God, there's that image of God there that has value and worth. And we are to respect that. So thank you. Actually, that message is not always the most comfortable message for us. Because in our home, we uh, struggle with a certain amount of selfishness. Sometimes I think that maybe we're just grown-up children. (laughs) So... Okay, why don't we just bow for a word of prayer right now. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word and showing us what you're like when you were here upon the earth. And then for guiding us with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us. Help us, Lord, to be more like you, even even today, Lord. You do pray, Lord, for the Arlene and the rest of the family there in their home. Do pray, Lord, you would bless them and minister your grace to them in comfort and help them, Lord, to grieve, to grieve properly and, Lord, to uh, be able to process it and uh, to move on, Lord, to a new normal for their life. We pray, Lord, you give us, as you give us opportunity, help us to lighten their load and give us, show us how to do that. And Lord, we live in a world, Lord, that is broken. And there's many, many opportunities to do that. Yes, to our neighbors across the street and yes, to the neighbors across the world. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us that we can give to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let us turn to Second Peter this morning, and I will read right off to the beginning here. We'll just simply read the first 11 verses of Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. 
Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren and sisters, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the fourth message out of Second Peter, that letter written by Peter to warn and prepare the early church for the flood of false teachers and heresies that were going to come, that were already there and were going to come after his death. And so, since he was going to die soon, he wrote this letter to them under the inspiration of God. That first message, and I, I, like to, I don't know if I continue to review, because it's going to get a long review after a while, but we'll continue to review that first message, we focused on the adequate provisions that God has provided for his people. He said, we are in the faith. And as such, we've been provided grace and we've provided peace and we have divine power. We have all those things that pertain unto life and godliness. We have those precious, those exceeding great and precious promises we have all those provisions. All this is received by faith in Jesus Christ. And that sounds like the end of the story, doesn't it? People get saved. They are born again. They become a Christian and they are baptized and they think we have arrived. And you have arrived. You've arrived at the head of the trail. At the beginning, at the start of a journey, it is a wonderful place to be, but it's not the place to sit down and rest. The equivalent is this. You have put on your serious hiking equipment. You have put on your shoes, your, shop, your socks so you don't get ticks, and your backpack, in which is your tent, and your sleeping bag, and your cooking equipment, and your first aid kit, and whatever else you put in a sleeping bag, uh, in, a, in a backpack, before you go hiking. 
and some food, I suppose. And after you have everything equipped to go hiking, you sit down on the park bench and you say, I have arrived. I finally got packed. No, you're now ready to go. That's the Lord Jesus Christ equips us. You get all that equipment and you get that equipment for a purpose. As I've said many times, the Christian life is not a 50-yard dash. It's not a quarter-mile run. It's not even a 26-mile marathon. It is a huge, long, cross-country trek over varied terrain, some of it, most of it, unknown. But... We start equipped. We have adequate provisions. Don't forget that. The second message we focused on, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. God has provided through Jesus Christ. Now get going and utilize what you've been given. Add to your faith. Now that sounds strange to modern ears, but it's not optional. This is the Christian life, walking out, the grace of God. <clears throat> and then we talked about what should we add. Hmm? I thought that was spring-loaded, but I see it's not. Okay, maybe we can use a tray here. Rather than try to draw it all over again, I drew it at home with a little bit of help from my daughter. Walking out the grace of God. And uh, as we started with that in the second message, we emphasize all diligence. All diligence. This is not a Sunday afternoon walk in the woods. The word diligent means sweat and toil and blisters and tears and sore muscles and weariness. All diligence means go out for it. Give your everything for it. It's the result of determination. There is a persuasion there in your heart. You know, did you ever see someone try to do something when their heart wasn't in it? Um, one example. Uh, this is a sa- example from our home. There is some food that a child doesn't really want to eat. And somehow, whether it's on their fork or something, somehow it just falls off before it gets to the mouth. <laughs> Ever see that happen? There's no heart there. Diligence means there is persuasion. There is a destination to be reached and there is a long journey to get there. If we are laid back or casual in our effort, Peter says we probably won't arrive there. How shall we add? Or no, what shall we add? Well, he gave a list of seven qualities, and they appear to be in sequence. Add to your faith virtue, then add to your virtue, 
knowledge and add to your knowledge, and so on it goes. And so we asked the question, well, is that like stacking Legos on a, on a stack? Do you just simply add one on top of the other? And so I have knowledge, but I don't have any temperance yet because I haven't arrived there. You had temperance, but you don't have any brotherly kindness yet because you haven't arrived there. Is that, how, is that what it's like? Is it all in sequence? You have to add it up. And we uh, said that Jim Berg explains it this way. It is both sequential and simultaneous which means simultaneously he likened it to the development of an embryo in a, well, any embryo, where all the parts are developing, but some parts are developing first. Some parts are more important. That brain, that big head, if you look at a picture of an embryo and a baby, that big head has a brain that is developing because there's things in there that are needed to develop the rest of the baby. And then the heart starts beating very early on because that circular system is needed. Now, the lungs come later. They're not needed. But, but even, even while the lungs are not developed, they are not uh, developed first, they are still developing. And so you have everything developing simultaneously, but there are certain things more important. And so... That is where we had the foundation where you actually have virtue and knowledge at the bottom and then you build off from there. And we'll talk a little bit about that yet. Virtue, which is excellence. Something is excellent when it does well what it was designed to do. We were designed to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our king. If we are surrendered to him, if we truly acknowledge him as Lord by our mouth, by our heart, and by our actions, we have added virtue to our life, to our faith. If the lordship is missing, it will affect everything else in that life. Then we look to adding to our faith knowledge. Were you ever lost? If you were, and if you were a man and actually did stop for directions, (laughs) if that person was knowledgeable and was able to communicate to you well how to get to your destination, you know how helpful that is when someone actually knows how to direct you. You know how precious that knowledge is. That is how it is. When we get to know Jesus, when we get to know his word, when we get to understand how to apply God's principles in our word, that is knowledge. It is very, very important. What does lordship mean? It means Jesus is my Lord. Well, what does the Lord want? Well, you need to learn what that means. So that is built on top of lordship. Add knowledge. And this is done personally, and it's done corporately. And we gain knowledge as we work together, as we talk together, as we 
challenge one another, we gain knowledge, and as we speak into each other's lives. That is the foundation of Christian character. Now, this morning, we come to what we call the, the guts of Christian character. The, what I have here is the courage. This is where you actually um, really get into the heart of where the internal activity goes. Add to your faith temperance. What is that? Temperance is a word we don't use very much anymore. I don't. I don't know. Do you use the word temperance much in your um, in your advertisement um, at all there, Matt? No, temperance is not a word we use, is it? There was in history a temperance movement. And I just thought I'd bring that out a little bit. The temperance movement was, uh, and this is a wiki definition, the temperance movement was a social and political campaign of the 19th and early 20th centuries advocating moderation or total abstinence from alcohol, prompted by the belief that drink was responsible for many of society's ills. And you had women that were holding signs that said, lips that hold liquor shall not touch ours. So to be intemperate was to be drunk. So is Peter saying this morning, add to your faith, don't get drunk? Well, it is that, <laughs> but it's wider than that. A more modern way to understand temperance and the word that actually most modern translations use is actually the word self-control. Self-control. Be in control of yourself. Having self-control means having control or victory over your internal desires. Self-control in the Greek basically means to get a hold of, to grip. Get a grip of your internal desires. The next word on the list would be patience. Patience has to do with victory over the external circumstances that affect us being enduring. But this one has to do with your internal. There's some overlap between the two, but it has to do with the internal desires. Well, that should be quite easy, don't you think so? What should be so hard about telling yourself no? Saying no to that second cookie, or that second look, or that second word. It should be pretty easy, right? Well, I found out that getting a grip on myself is harder than getting a grip on a fish that you just pulled out of the water. That that slippery, wet flopping fish and you want to grip it and it just 
can't hardly grip it. It's wet, it's slippery, it's moving. There's nothing conducive in it to get a grip. Well, did you ever attempt, attempt to get a grip on your own desires? Do you ever hear of the missing link? In evolutionary history, there is a missing link between the eight creatures and humanity. There's just a big gap there, and they have all these theories where that missing link is. Well, in modern Christianity, self-control could be called a missing link. There's a link missing. It's the third in line of Christian graces, and it's not a characteristic that we can actually bypass. Now, I'm going to give you an overview of the first three links. Growing in virtue, that's at the bottom, has to do with capturing the heart for Jesus. That's the first part. Growing in virtue has to do with capturing the heart for Jesus. Growing in knowledge has to do with informing the heart about Jesus. Growing in knowledge, informing the heart about Jesus. Self-control is about training the heart to live like Jesus. And they come in sequence. It's where... Our passion, our heart, and our well-informed knowledge needs to be turned into reality. It is in this arena where we declare warfare to our flesh. It is in this place where we roll against the tide of our own internal desires. Can we bypass that? No, we cannot bypass that. Add to your faith temperance. It must not be missing. Paul did this very thing. And you can turn there. It's a little couple of verses here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul did this very thing. 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 24. Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate. There is our word, is temperate. It's the same word in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I, Paul says, I, therefore so run. Not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul, you got it. You understand exactly what Peter is saying. There is no robbing Peter to pay Paul here. Peter is saying, if you do not add temperance to your faith, 
you're setting yourself up for failure. Paul says, if I is saying, I do add temperance so that I myself, a great preacher, do not fail. It's right together. And that is for us here as well. So what does adding self-control mean? Self-control is not control by the natural self, but control of the natural self, okay? You don't control self by your natural self, but you control, it's control of your natural and often simple self. And here's the, here is the description of what needs to happen. The natural desires must be kept within spiritual parameters and sinful desires must be fully denied. I'll just repeat that. The natural desires must be kept within spiritual parameters and sinful desires must be fully denied. Years ago, one of my friend's relatives went to what we called a charismatic church. Now, that is a definition we don't hear nowadays anymore. <laughs> Back in my day, in our, our youth, charismatic really meant something. Now it has a lot of other names. But they had friends that went to a charismatic church. He said they go to this church and they get filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> he said they experienced the power of God there. But he also said they still don't have enough power to come home and turn off their television set. Self-control. How about you? How about me? Is there a power within me Strong enough to bring my thoughts and motives and actions under control to the will of God. Okay, well, before we dive into this issue of self-control and all it means, I'm going to address another pressing question. And this question arises because of our modern psychological and political climate that we're in. We live in a victim society. We like to blame others for our problems. I like to blame others for my problems. Our conscience tells us we ought to control ourselves, and it convicts us when we don't, but our society tells us it's okay if you can because it's not your fault anyway. So as I'm making a case for self-control, is that actually, can that actually be expected? And our society says generally no. The reason I do this is because I'm in poverty and I don't feel good about myself. I feel trapped. My parents are unreasonable. I experienced a bad childhood. I never got the blessing from my father. Therefore, I'm not really responsible for my erratic behavior. And excuses are given instead of responsibility taken. To expect me 
after all I've been through, after my background, to expect me to have control of myself is cruel and unusual punishment. I can't because of my past and my experience. Now, maybe I have a poem here that might be familiar to some of you. But back in the 60s, folk singer, folk singer Anna Russell wrote about the world in which was coming to fruition back then. Here's what she wrote. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it naturally follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But I am happy. Now I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. In all about worldview that I read here, the question is asked. Is guilt, guilt that people experience, is guilt psychological or is it real? And this observation is made in this article. Both humanist and Marxist, or now we could call socialist today, speak only of psychological guilt. Because for them, only society is evil. People do nothing individually that would actually incur guilt. The reason people do things wrong is because of their society. That is the spirit of the age. You are a helpless victim and you're not responsible for your own actions. You may be sick, but you are not sinful. Drunkenness or intoxication or alcoholism is now designated as a disease. Some years ago, shoplifting was discussed as a disease. I don't know if they actually designated it as a disease or not. I'm not sure. But some people are serial shoplifters. They can't help themselves. So that makes them sick and not guilty, right? There's a store that I went to regularly that had a sign over that time, right over that time, that said, shoplifting is a sickness. Underneath it said, don't get sick here. The spirit of our age is that our Bible verses don't fit anymore. We need to change things. It's instead of, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? We need to change it to, oh, worthy man that I am, would that I could only see it better. And then I'll have better self-esteem and then I would overcome my problems. So, 
the, um, are we actually expected to have self-control? Our society says no. Not totally, but largely. There's another way we can excuse ourselves from the guilt of our lack of self-control. And that is to explain it as our personality. I am hardwired this way. You are hardwired that way. I am a type A personality, so I usually have some kind of emotional explosive response because that's who I am. You are laid back, and it's hard to get you to do anything, but that's because of who you are. And we can spiritualize it. God made us this way. Some are evangelists, some are teachers, some are mercy. And you know, that's all true. We are all different. But let us not forget, temperance or self-control is our responsibility. I may not blame it on society or my family or my experiences or my personality. Some years ago, when we were grappling with personalities issues in our circles, the general thinking was, if you have the gift of prophecy, if you're a prophet, you have a, you know, you're sort of a prophet type person, you would be blunt, sometimes rude, and not very caring or personal. If you have the gift of mercy on the other side, you will care about people so much that you will not really bring them to the real truth. And so we slotted people's actions by their personalities. But the question arises, does a prophet always have to be blunt and rude and uncaring? Maybe there's some lack of temperance in his life. The Bible answer is no. If you look at examples, take Jeremiah, for example. You know what Jeremiah is known as? The weeping prophet. He's the weeping prophet. Now, he said some very hard things. He said things, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, put everything in a nutshell, what he said to the people. He said, God is going to kill all of you in the most horrible way. That's what he told the people. That's what a prophet does. God is going to kill all of you in the most horrible way. Was that blunt? Was it rude? But he had a tender heart. Just read Lamentations. And if you read that and you meditate it, you almost have to weep with him. Because it's, it is a destruction of a people. Of a society. And he says in Jeremiah 4.19, he says, My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart makes a noise within me. I can't hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Who says a prophet must be blunt and uncaring? And who says that a person of mercy must fudge the truth? Nobody is saying that. 
we have different personalities. But we also need temperance or self-control with our personalities. So we do not want to excuse ourselves. What I'm saying is this. is Peter is saying, add self-control. Don't allow the victim mentality or the psychology of this age to soften or eliminate the directive that Peter gives. If we do, there will be a mislink, and our outcome will be either less or less than successful, or we will have total failure. Now, if there are addictions in our lives, if there are strong habits, if there are ungodly traits, if there are phobias because of our past, acknowledge them. It means that you are a sinner. And isn't that a surprise? I'm a sinner. And as I look at myself and I look at some of the things that I bring with me, I find some sin there. (laughs) That shouldn't surprise us. In fact, that's a good place to start because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So that means he came to save me. He did not come to save excusers. If you're an excuser, he didn't come to save you. Be honest. And yes, we can ask for help. We are supposed to help each other. Okay, let's move on. So we need self-control. When a couple gets married, what they have at first is called the honeymoon stage. Are you still in it? And it lasts until when? Well, until they really get to know each other. (laughs) That varies. They have committed themselves to each other. But now the strains of that commitment begin to appear after marriage. The realities of the obligations and the duties and the responsibilities and the need for restraint begin to surface after marriage. How couples deal with that will determine the long-term happiness and success of their marriage. Now, a similar thing can occur with our relationship with God, with Christ. We came to faith with him and we gave our heart to him, our whole life. We love him, we want to serve him for the rest of our life. But the honeymoon ends. Because the strains of that commitment that we gave to him begin to appear. Jesus says one thing, and our natural tendencies and selfishness says another thing. And there's that tension. You know, before marriage, we were used to thinking our own thoughts and doing our own things and our own ways, but... Now that we're married, well, we we came into this marriage rejoicing, but we actually say this. We actually came into this marriage rejoicing what we gained, and we came into this relationship with Christ rejoicing. And I have this verse song, song here that I just thought I could read. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died, he for me, who caused his pain. For me, 
who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That is Charles Wesley's words, I think. And we are amazed. And yes, God loves me, a wretch and a sinner. And so we gladly embrace him. But we are not naturally trained to yield to him in all areas of our life. We bring along into this new relationship, into this new Christian relationship, we bring our habits and our reactions and our ruts and our hang-ups and our quirks and our fears, our fantasies and our egos and our wrong Philosophies, that's called wrong thinkings, okay? <laughs> we bring that all along with us. No, not everything, because when we are saved, some things just melt away. We become new creatures. Some habits are gone, but not everything. Not everything. If it were, we would not have this exhortation here. If it were, why did Paul still need to discipline his body? No, after we become Christians, we need to learn how to bring our actions, our desires under and train it into uh, obedience of Christ. In, uh, in Titus, Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to deny, to deny worldly lust. And to live righteously and godly and soberly in this present world. That is an ongoing process. Now desires are a natural part of our human experience. I think I heard somebody say of some, you know, how young men grow up and they never grow up quite, you know. (laughs) And they said, you guys are so unmotivated that he thinks if the air weren't free, you wouldn't go for it. <laughs> but desires are a part of the natural human experience. We desire food, water, sleep, companionship, fulfillment, security. We desire to avoid pain, vulnerability, criticism, and hopelessness. We are a bundle of desires and wants and cravings. That's who we are. We are not robots. We need training. First things first. Are you really serious? Are you really ready to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ? Maybe you do like your pet sin. Not the consequences of it, not the guilt of it, not the results of it. But do you actually hate the things that are in your life that you know do not please the Lord? We don't like the effects or the results of our sin, so we say we hate our sin. But deep down, the reality is, if we could avoid the consequences of that sin, 
we would keep it. Because we really do like it. It really does something for us that we enjoy. An example is this. I'll give an example. Someone who likes to go shopping or feels good when they spend money. They lack self-control when it comes to their finances. The consequences is the consequence is unless they have a huge income is debt and financial hardship. So the consequences force them to recognize their lack of temperance in spending. But they do not really see their wasteful squandering of the Lord's money as sin. Well, maybe they do see it as sin, but they so much enjoy it that if the consequences of the debt would be taken away, or you take that consequences away, they would just go back to their old habits of spending. They don't really want to deal with the root issue, which is probably their ego in having stuff or the indulgence of having pleasure or comfort. So because of the effects of their intemperance, they deal with it, but take the effect away and we slip back easily into our old habit. So are you really serious about temperance in your life? In training ourselves to yield to become like Jesus in every area of life. Regardless of the consequences, where do we start? Self-control. How about our eating? Is self-control needed here in America? What would Jesus eat? How much would he eat? When would he not eat? Here in America, we dig our graves with our spoons, they say. Rich food, processed food, sweet food, fat food, salt food. Obesity is an epidemic in our country, and the authorities are struggling to find answers how to deal with it. And it's, it's multifaceted, that obesity problem. But do we need to tell them how to eat? Do we need them to tell us how to eat? You know, I have some things here. Eat unpressed, real food more. Eat less sugar. Eat less. <laughs> That's simple enough. Go without food regularly. Fast. You know, we will not be all the same thinness. And I'm not, think, I'm not talking about your body mass index. I mean, that is some indicator, but it's not only that. It is to have control of your eating, self-control. Uh, I, I was debating whether I should read this or not, and I think I will, because it's someone else reading it, uh, Elizabeth Elliot. And since she is saying it, it's not coming from me, okay? <laughs> In ancient Jewish times, a stubborn son was, who was a glutton and a drunk, oh, a stubborn son who was a glutton and a drunkard was stoned to death. 
Gluttony, one of the most more obvious modern sins, is generally accepted. Little is said from it from the pulpit. It is too embarrassing. It gets too close to where the people, often including the preacher, live. No one who is, and she uses the word, no one who is fat dares to preach about it. He has no room to talk. Seldom will one who is not fat have the courage to broach the subject, for he will be told he has no business to talk about it since he never had a weight problem. How does anyone know? Maybe he practices what he preaches. Who then is left to talk about it? And uh, that is her saying about eating, self-control. Should I go on? That one was bad enough. I don't think we need to talk about drink, do I? Not unless we are intemperate about juices and soda. How about sleep? Most of us don't get enough, but some of us just maybe don't get to bed on time so that we can get up joyfully, so we can use, definitely use self-control in going to bed on time. How about our time? God says to redeem the time because the days are evil. It's, time is like a coupon. It expires. If you don't use it, by the time it expires, you can't use it anymore. God says redeem it. He gave you time. Give it back to him. But we live in a day of leisure. It used to be that the TV was a great time waster. When people found out that we didn't have a TV, they said, you don't have a TV? What do you do all day? Well, can that question still be asked of us today? With all our computers and gadgets and apps, with all the socializing If the Lord Jesus would live in your home for a week, would he ask you to bring some self-control into your time management? Mothers, do you twiddle your day away? Fathers, is your time productive in your home and in the Lord's work? Or do hobbies, sports, or games, or leisures eat up? your spare time. Youth. Oh, the carefree years of youth. The time will come when you won't have those carefree years. How are you redeeming those years? Those years, those months, those days, and those hours. Are you seriously in the word, in prayer, You could write letters of encouragement, at least, at least digitally, right? (laughs) You could learn a foreign language for the gospel's sake. You could minister in your neighborhood. You could help busy mothers. You could help your own mother. 
You could earn money to give away for the poor. Or is time and money flittered away in sports or hobbies? You know, youth boys, especially nowadays, have a lot of income. That dollar or that thousand dollars that you earn is actually not yours. It is all God's. What are you doing with God's money and his time? Does your conscience speak to you and you know that you need to discipline your time? You know, many good things can take away from the best things. Train your heart to be like Jesus in this area of time. Elizabeth Elliot also says she was brought up to believe that it was a sin to be late. To cause others to wait for you, her parents taught her, is to steal from them one of their most precious commodities, time. Time is a creature. It's a created thing. It's a gift. We cannot make more of it. We can only receive it and be good stewards of it. One mother told her teenage son, if the president can run this country on 24 hours a day, You ought to be able to get your room cleaned. Are you temperate in your use of your time? Well, while we are on temperance, maybe we can talk about temper. Or more specifically about our emotions. Are we in control of our emotions or are, are we at the mercy of our emotions? Does the way you feel dictate your responses, or are you really in control? There are two areas under this point. One is whether or not your emotions are in check or under control. That means if you actually allow your emotion to rule you. The other is whether your life is guided by your feelings or by objective truth. So we have two parts under this part here. First part, are your emotions in check and are they under control? You know, in my youth, I went on a bike ride. Some some Sunday afternoons, I went on bike rides. And I remember one specific time where I biked over to New Holland. And I was in the parking lot of the cut rate store that used to be over there. And there was a small compact car came into the parking lot. And there was a young couple sitting in there in the front seat. And they just had an emotional breakdown right in front of me. They, they began, they were hollering at each other. They began to yell at each other. They were both yelling at the same time as loudly as they could. And finally, the man that was driving just put it in gear and gunned it and out to the parking lot they went. That is a picture of emotions way out of control. For us, it might mean, if I don't feel good emotionally, I'm just grouchy. If I get my way, I'm happy. If I don't, I pout. 
Our outlook on life depends on our on our mood or our emotions, and it goes much further than that. It goes right into it can actually be, we can actually go into depression. I'm not saying be a doormat and just let whatever happens happen. It means as things happen, are your emotions a servant, or are they? The master, and one thing that is closely connected to our emotions is something else. Anybody want to guess what is closely connected to our emotions? Have a guess. What often comes out when we're highly emotional? Anger. <laughs> okay, anger. That's another emotion. Something that's not an emotion, but it comes because of our emotions. Our words. Our tongue. You know, if we would... Those sharp words or those words of gossip, if we would actually have our emotions in check and have control of our emotion, we would go a long, long way in keeping our tongue in check as well because they are very closely connected. Keeping our emotions under control of the Spirit of God will too much to keep our tongue in control. The other area of our, on this point is whether our life is guided by our feelings or whether they are guided by objective truth. When I talk about objective truth, I'm talking about something outside of you that's true. Or whether something inside of you is subjective, it's how you feel. Eugene Patterson, I think I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. He is the one, a very popular evangelical author, that recently came out in favor of homosexuality. When he made an example, of, I'm sorry, when he made a statement of his newly acceptance of homosexual marriage, he gave this reason. His criterion for acceptance of homosexuality was the fact that gay Christians, end quote, seem to have as good a spiritual life as I do. So he observed those people's lives and it seemed like they just had, they were just as godly and were just as spiritual And they were just as loving and everything else you could call in a Christian, that a Christian should have. So therefore, he could no longer say they were wrong. That is an example of your feelings ruling a decision in your life when objective truth is clearly wrong. But if we go by our feelings, how we feel about something rather than truth, we will do the same thing in other areas. In fact, we do. We really do. But we need to grow in temperance and self-control. Jesus was almost overcome with his emotions in the garden. He did not feel. He would have followed his feelings. He would not have gone to the cross. But 
he was not overcome with his feelings to the point of giving up his father's will. And we can say today, praise God. But today, the modern mind easily confuses feeling with the facts. And the idea is going with your feelings is genuine. You're being honest when you listen to your heart. If you don't listen to your heart, you're putting on a front. <laughs> well, no. My heart, is, my heart is telling me I should do this, but God's word says this, so I'm going to do God's word. No, that's not dishonesty. That is simply being in control of your emotions and feelings. And so there is a place of victory and I know, I know I had, years ago I had explained an illustration like this. There is a place of sanctification of your heart that more of your heart and more of your feelings line up with God's word. There is growth in that. And I used the example one time of, of uh, three people walking. One of them says a very funny but very filthy joke and the other two it affects them it has an effect one of them it is so funny he is laughing so badly he can hardly keep on walking the other person is so shocked he is so shocked that he can hardly keep walking that had to do with the condition of their heart now that's the extremes many times and as we as we deal with feelings, we're not at that extreme. We've got something mildly so. And we have to, we, we actually, it's a funny thing, but it's not badly, badly bad. <laughs> and so our, our, our humor enters in and we want to laugh. But the objective thing is, there's something wrong with it. So God's word objectively says, no, that's wrong. But we are in that tension. Uh, to be temper- have temperance or self-control is to go with God's word. Don't allow your feelings to overcome the objective truth. Sometimes you must not listen to your heart. Just because we feel like doing something or we feel it's right does not always mean it's right. Jonah didn't feel like going to Nineveh. Our feelings are extremely fickle. They change and we don't always feel like doing God's will. But someone like Abraham, unlike Jonah, he was a man of faith. When that command came, Take your son, your only son. I do not know what was going through his heart. I am sure his feelings were not there. But he took the revelation of God and he acted on that. That is temperance. That is self-control. So the two areas about our emotions, they are to be under control and they are not reliable guides of truth. Well, this morning, I only moved five words ahead in this text. I was planning to do more. It seems very slow. At this rate, 
it's going to take us a long time to get through First Peter. Someone told me, well, that's job security for you. But actually, I'm actually going too fast. I have not touched whole areas of self-control. And the areas I touched, I just skimmed over the surface. But what I wanted to convince all of us this morning is that you know where self-control is needed in your heart. I wanted to convince you that this is an essential part. Training our hearts to live like Jesus. And like all training, it is a process. If you see needs in your life, and you will, if you're really, really uh, in tune with God, you will see needs in your life. Some of us struggle with it in this area. Some of us struggle in this area. But if you see it, don't despair. Just add to your faith. Add it and keep on adding it. That faith that Abraham had, add to your faith temperance. We are in the process of making our calling and election sure. We are moving towards an abundant entrance in heaven. And we are being fortified against the ways and the wiles of the world and the devil as we do this. This is exciting. Remember, it's exciting this afternoon when you sit down to eat. (laughs) Or tomorrow morning when it's time to get up. That exciting self-control is a great thing. And you love it, right? (laughs) One final word from Elizabeth Elliot. No argument for discipline, which I gave you an argument for discipline this morning, okay? No argument for discipline or temperance will furnish the power to discipline. He, God, who summons is the one who empowers. If we give ourselves to his rule, he gives us grace to rule. Now that gets the whole message in a nutshell. We are to rule our spirit. We are to rule our desires. As we give ourselves to his rule, he gives us grace to rule. That is the answer. May God bless you.